The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. Today in Revelation chapter 3, if you want to take your Bibles and turn there, and we are just beginning the study of the third chapter and the fifth of the seven churches of Asia. We have this one and two more, Philadelphia and Laodicea. And then we will complete the circuit of churches just as the divine messenger in the first century took these letters to these different seven churches. The fifth church that we'll study beginning today is the church at Sardis. And I have an unusual description for it. I, I called it the zombie church. And this is because of what Jesus says in the first verse of chapter 3, Thou hast a name that thou livest and art dead. And that statement will hang over the exposition of this text. It's the pale horse that rides through the passage, attracting comments and comparisons to churches of today. So if you found the text, I want you to follow along with me as I read this letter written to the church in Sardis. And I want you to pay particular attention. Look out for this, the words watchful and watch. Those have a great deal of meaning for this text. Revelation chapter 3 and verse number 1. And unto the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful, and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received, and heard, and hold fast, and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He that overcometh, the same shall be clothed in white raiment, and I will not blot out his name out of the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. I've chosen to call this the zombie church, not because... I believe zombies are real, but I thought you would have very little trouble understanding the reference. And if you are teaching your kids to stay away from the culture that gave the world the gross, violent movies and television shows about zombies, then I sincerely apologize this morning for being a corrupting influence on them. And I will do my best not to contribute to the delinquency of your children as we discuss the subject today. Now, I want to get this out of the way at the very beginning. There, there isn't any such thing as zombies, in case you were wondering about that. Uh, they're, they're not real. There are no humans that are dead, and then they get up to walk around and bite the living to infect them with their dead disease. But nonetheless, it does seem that some of God's children are spiritual zombies, that they claim life in Christ, but they're as dead as they can be. And when a church has too many of the spiritually walking dead, that can infect the life of the church, and it will kill the church. 
People that are like that make others that are just like them, and they precipitate the judgment of God to fall on the church. Now, the church in Sardis is described this way, that they had a reputation for being a living church, but they were, and it looked like they were vibrant, but what they had done, they had fooled themselves and others into thinking they are alive when they are dead, and maybe many of them didn't even know the Lord at the beginning. Now, as I prepare these messages, I look at the text, I look for key elements, I look at cross-references and those things, and I compare the comments of uh, several good commentaries to get some sense of how others have interpreted the text. But unfortunately, I've not found too many good commentaries on Revelation. Most of them are from an amillennial viewpoint, and thus they're not literal in their interpretation. Uh, you remember in our study of Thyatira just this past week that I mentioned the Amil interpretation is problematic and impossible to reconcile with verses 26 and 27 in that chapter. They have no meaning unless there's a real, literal, future messianic kingdom of Jesus Christ that will come to this earth. But we have many commentators on Revelation who don't believe that there will be a literal kingdom of Christ that will come to the earth. And since they don't believe in a literal kingdom, I have a hard time putting faith in men who make those kinds of commentaries and uh, speak of the book of Revelation in that way. And so with a few, just so few good commentaries, I've noticed that the good ones often mimic each other, and that's true the exposition of this text uh, of the church at Sardis. Several of them begin with the same illustration, which I think is good and helpful for understanding the problem of the church, and I don't mind repeating what they've said uh, as we speak today. This was a church in which the light of Christ had gone out, but they and others were unaware of it, or at least they were uncaring that it had. In Matthew chapter 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, which we know as Jesus' manifesto of his kingdom, he said, let your light so shine before men that they may glorify your, they may see your good works, and that they may glorify your Father which is in heaven. Let your light so shine before men. Sardis was a church with the light burned out. Now the often used illustration that I referred to is that of a distant star that is burned out. This of course is appropriate considering this text and those before it here in Revelation 1 through 3 has much to say about stars and candles and light. We see that in the introduction of chapter 1. And so, a distant star has burned out, and yet when we go outside to look at the stars tonight, we may be unaware, because the star that has burned out is so far away from us that the light of that star is still traveling towards us even after the star is dark. Our universe is so vast that it's impossible to fathom the distances to the stars. And to measure those distances, the numbers are just mind-boggling. And so scientists have invented a measurement for that. They call it a light year. That's the distance that light travels in one year. That distance is 186,000 miles per second. That amounts to 6 trillion miles. Those are mind-boggling numbers, especially when you consider that the nearest star, or rather the furthest galaxy, I should say, from us that's known is 13 and a half billion light years from us. 
So it's possible that a star that you see in the sky tonight may have burned out long ago, and yet you wouldn't know it, because if that star is, say, 50 light years from us, the light of that star, when it's flickering and ready to go out, doesn't reach us until the year 2067. So one author said that the church at Sardis was the opposite of the church at Smyrna. Smyrna was a church surrounded by death. Christians were dying for their faith, and yet the church was strong and it was healthy. It was standing for the Lord. They looked dead, but they were alive. But in Sardis, Christians are active, they are busy, they're culturally sensitive, they're doing well with compromise, nobody bothers them, so they look alive, but they're dead. The light of their star had gone out long ago, and Jesus tells them that darkness will catch up with them, and they'll be extinguished forever. Now in Smyrna, church that we talked about earlier, this was a church that was given hope in Christ with his encouraging words, I became dead, but I am alive. They heard their Lord say that to them, and they didn't let death defeat them. They lived for Christ, despite the fact that they saw Christians that were dying around them for their faith. The Sardian church is the opposite of that. This is a church already dead. It's only the reputation that made them appear alive. And this is what they were doing. They were living off of that reputation. Quite frankly, that reminds me of many church members. They live off of what they did in the past. This is what we used to do for our church. This is the way we used to work. And they live off of that past. And it's hard to tell that they're Christians now because you separate them from that past and you don't see any works at all. Now we've noticed that each church here has an uncanny, or Christ has an uncanny ability of catching the atmosphere of the city, the region, something going on there that caused the church's problems. And so with the other churches, he would use a phrase, he would turn that phrase, and they could identify with it. He uses dead and alive. He says, synagogue of Satan, two-edged sword, crown of life, white stone, those Phrases are used in these three chapters. In Sardis, the one that describes them is alive but dead. This is a church that had taken on the character of their city. Sardis was a dying city. This is a city that saw its heyday a long, long time ago. It's a city that is decaying. Now it reminds us of a place like Detroit, once thriving, once the auto capital of the world, but now a city shrinking and dying in poverty. I was looking on the internet the other day at, at housing costs in different parts of the country, and I noticed that in Detroit, you can buy a house, much like the ones that you see here in your neighborhoods, for about forty dollars or $50,000. Incredible how that city is dying. Sardis was once the capital of a formidable empire. It was well-known and respected, it was a city that had made its way into the Greek mind as being ideal, a fortified city, a wealthy place, and unconquerable. But that time was way past. They'd fallen on hard times, and now the reputation of Sardis is there of very little significance. And the church in the city is in that same decline and decay. Now let me give you a little bit of the history that will demonstrate the appropriateness of Christ's words. And you have to know the history of Sardis to appreciate the, the sarcasm 
in Christ's statement, alive but dead. Following this in verses 2 and 3 is the method for the church to be revived. If we want to know how to get a church jump-started, get it going again, then we have verses 2 and 3 that will help us, and we'll talk about that later on. In these messages on Sardis, I want to ask them questions, and I'll answer those questions as I exposit the text, and that'll give us a direction to go to work out the problems of the church. But before we get into those questions, we need to discover the history of Sardis, and that is indicative of the mindset of the church. The glory of Sardis was in a period about seven centuries before Christ. At that time, it was one of the world's greatest cities, it was in Turkey, in an area that's known as Lydia. And we find that Lydia is mentioned in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, about the same time that this region gained its, its greatest period. It intersects the Bible because of its significant power. Ezekiel wrote about the same time as Jeremiah, and that was at uh, the fall of Jerusalem and destruction of the, of the temple in the 6th century B.C., and so the world was very well acquainted with Lydia, with the Lydian Empire, along with the empire of Assyrians, Babylonians, and the Persians. In the 6th century B.C., the king of Lydia ruled from Sardis, and Sardis was an impregnable fortress. It was on a small plateau, 1,500 feet above the valley floor, surrounded by sheer, smooth cliffs that were impossible to scale. The only approach to the city was from the south, and that was along a very difficult road. And since that's the only approach, and hard to get to, that was the only approach that there was any concern about defending. The king at this time in the 6th century was named Cretius, and perhaps you've heard of him. He was the non-Jewish Solomon, a very rich man, the source of the phrase as rich as Cretius, if you've heard that. Legend says that the river that ran through the region flowed with gold dust that was picked up off the sands of the riverbanks, and that's how Cretius gained his wealth. There isn't any gold in that area today, and so nobody knows for sure if that's true. The area hasn't been mined to see if there's gold in the hills, so we might send Lino and Julie over there to check out the river to see if the legend is true. Yes, amen. But at any rate, it was an impregnable fortress. And with great wealth, Cretius became strong, he amassed, and he paid for an army that was a force to be reckoned with. And it was at the zenith of his power that Cretius decided that he wanted to expand his empire. Now another famous figure in the story that connects through the Bible or in the Bible was Cyrus. I'm sure you've heard of him. Cyrus was the king of the Persians. Cyrus defeated the Babylonians who conquered uh, Judah and took them into captivity and destroyed Jerusalem. And it was Cyrus uh, who gave permission for the Jews to return to Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple, and that was enacted by his successors. So in this time, this put Cretius up against Cyrus, two great world empires, and they are going to clash to find out which of these will take over and be the empire of the day. So Cretius inquired of his prophets and asked them, what if I go and fight against Cyrus, what's going to happen? And his prophets assured him that if you fight, if you cross the river and you go against Cyrus, there's going to be a great victory that you will win. So Cretius believed the prophecy. 
He crossed the river and he engaged Cyrus only to be soundly defeated. So Cretius decided to retreat and he went back across the river to Sardis, which he thought was impregnable, that he would stay there and he would regroup and he would live to fight another day. But what he didn't count on was that Cyrus would follow him. So Cyrus followed him across the river and surrounded the city and laid siege to it. But Cyrus had this problem. There's no way to scale the cliffs. There isn't any way to conquer the city. There's only this one approach that's from the south side that's easily guarded. And so Cyrus tried many, many times to take the city, but he couldn't. Cretius and the people in Sardis sat there within the city walls on top of this plateau surrounded by the cliffs, and they weren't worried. They had no fear at all because they knew nobody could conquer them. But something happened. One day, the, the army of Cyrus, his soldiers were down below in the valley and they were watching up on the cliffs and watching the hills or the, the walls of the city and they saw a soldier drop his helmet over the wall and, f- and it fell down the cliff. And that helmet lodged in a place in the cliff. And they saw this soldier as he very carefully scaled down the cliff to retrieve his helmet. And it was then that Cyrus' soldiers realized the Sardian's secret, that the, the, the cliffs could be scaled very carefully, but they'd only be scaled one by one. It could only be done at night, because in the daytime, a soldier, any soldier would be easily picked off if he tried to climb the walls. So Cyrus' soldiers waited until the night. And Cretius and his men were unsuspecting. They thought, well, that side of the city doesn't need to be guarded. We don't have to worry about that. All we do need to do is to guard the southern side. And so that's what they did, and nobody was watching the cliffs. On that night, Cyrus' soldiers began to climb. And one by one, they went up that wall, or those sheer cliffs rather, and one by one, they went into the city... And there was nobody who was watching that approach. It was said that one man could defend against an army from that approach. All he needed to do was to look. And it said that a baby could have defended Sardis. But nobody was watching. And so in the morning, Cretius awoke to find out the city had been penetrated, that it was filled with Persian soldiers, and Cretius was defeated and the city was taken. Now, that's interesting history, and it sounds like that should be the end of it, perhaps. But this is not the end of it. This is really what makes the story even more interesting, is that after Cyrus had conquered the city and he became the world empire, For 200 years, the city of Sardis was nothing. Nobody paid much attention to it. It began to fail in prominence. But back then, everybody's always trying to defeat somebody, always trying to defeat another kingdom. And so years after this, the Greeks conquered the Persians. Alexander the Great became the emperor of the Grecian Empire. And they always, the Greeks always looked at Sardis as a center of Hellenistic culture, and Sardis rose to prominence again under Alexander the Great. Well, Alexander was then challenged, and once again the city was under siege. This time it's by Antiochus Epiphanes of the Seleucids. I don't know if you've heard of him, but Antiochus Epiphanes was the one who sacrificed a sow 
on the altar in Jerusalem. He's spoken of in the Old Testament as the abomination of desolation, referring to the Antichrist in the New Testament, New Testament era. So Antiochus had the same problem that Cyrus had. How do you conquer the city? How do you scale those walls? Now, remarkably, the Sardians forgot their own history. And so they left the, uh, the cliffs unguarded, and Antiochus used the same approach that Cyrus did, and they, Antiochus' army of Seleucids, climbed those cliffs one by one, got into the city, and conquered the city. Now, by now, you should be able to make the connection in the text. You look at verse number 2. And the Lord says to them, Be watchful. The Smith translation says, You bunch of numbskulls, why aren't you watching? You see, the Lord considered the foolishness of the city that was defeated, that they were not careful to watch the approaching enemy. They were lazy, they were complacent, And what he's doing here is comparing that to the church. The church is the same. And in that condition, how much trouble is the church for Satan to defeat? Now we go back to the history. The small plateau on the top of the hill was a citadel that was too small to hold the population of a growing city. And so the city began to spread out and Sardis began to fill the valley that was beneath. And so now they're no longer impregnable. Now, by that time, we've reached the end of the first century, and the wealth and the power and the prestige of the place had faded, and they were no longer an empire, they weren't strategic, they were not a capital, and they'd faded in prominence. Now, another interesting part is the interest that the Roman governor Tiberius, or Emperor Tiberius, took in the city. He used it as a place of collection for Roman taxes, But in A.D. 17, the city was destroyed by an earthquake. So Tiberius suspended tax collection and gave Sardis money to rebuild, which they very quickly did. But in all of that, Sardis was no longer that empire. They're no longer a capital. They're no longer needed for any defense of Rome. And so Sardis was Detroit. The citadel on the hill was nothing but a monument to a bygone era, just like Detroit's factories. So it's this Sardian mindset of laziness and complacency that was inbred in the people. They never escaped that. And that attitude pervaded the church. They were soft and lifeless. They were not vigilant to guard the faith any more than their ancestors were to guard the city. And there we have Christ's reference. Alive, but dead. The past glory is gone. And this is what he says about the church. Your glory is fading away, ready to go into non-existence. Now we take that information and we do what the Lord intends for us to do with it. We're to look at this as something that's happening in churches today. This is an example for us that churches in the 21st century look much like Sardis in the 1st century that we have fat, lazy, complacent Christians that walk around like the living dead. I've seen it, and so have you. But I've seen it in this way, maybe in a way that very few of you have, maybe one or two of you have. I grew up in the South, and I've seen, not to single out a particular group, but I've seen this rampant in Southern Baptist churches. Oh yes, they have enormous churches, many of these enormous churches with lots of activity. I see people that are faithful to go to church every Sunday, but you look in the eyes of the people and they're hollow. 
their lives outside of the church belie their Christianity. They're, they're apathetic. They're like the living dead. And there are so many churches in the South that they have the idea that they're impregnable. Kentucky is about 60% Baptist. That's where I grew up. Further south in Georgia and Alabama, the numbers go up. By the time you get to Mississippi, that area is 80% Baptist churches. And I've told you, when I lived in Kentucky, I couldn't drive a mile without coming across a Baptist church building. But we notice that in the area there is no revival. There's no revival in the south. There are no great movements for Christ that are taking place despite the numbers of huge churches that are there. The south is spiritually dying just like the northeast died, which one time was the center of Christian activity. You go back to the beginning of this country and the first great awakening, it was the northeast of our country where churches were built, where people were saved by the thousands, and that revival spread to the rest of the country. But now you go there and the northeast is dead. As a good friend of ours who visits our church every now and then, uh, he refers to it, and others have, as the burned over zone. That is, there's been so much gospel preaching there that people don't listen to it anymore because nobody lives the faith that they claim. And so Christianity has practically died out in the northeastern part of our country. The same thing is taking place in the south today. There is no revival there. The area that's supposed to be the strongest for our country with its churches is an area that's dying for the cause of Christ. Now, complaining about what the church used to be and that happens here, complaining about what the church used to be is not much good when those complaints come from the used-to-be Christians, the ones who used to do something. Now, I want you to look at the beginning of the letter. Our questions begin next week. Jesus opened this letter with an announcement of himself, just like he did the other letters. And this time we find a theological quandary that stumps many Bible students. He begins by saying, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God. Weeks ago I promised that I would get into this. Finally we're here. And if you remember, I had a question from one of our teachers that came through one of the students. And this inquisitive young person asked, What are the seven spirits of God? Isn't there just one Holy Spirit? Yes, we're Trinitarian. There's one Father. There is one Son. There is one Holy Spirit. God is one. He's three in one. And each person of the Godhead possesses all of the essential attributes of God. First John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Ephesians 4, 4, There is one body and one Spirit even as ye are called in one hope of your calling. There is one Spirit. So how do we read that there are seven spirits in Revelation 3, verse 1? And the same question arises from the first chapter in verse 4, where John wrote, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace be unto you, and peace from him which is, and which was, and which is to come, and from the seven spirits of God. Why? Seven spirits. Why does the Bible say this? And further, why is that important to Sardis? Now, I begin with a comment that chapter 1, I said a moment ago, chapter 1 has words and phrases that are repeated in these seven letters. The opening 
letter to the Ephesians, that's in chapter 2, has its introduction in verse number 20 in the first chapter with seven stars and seven candlesticks. The Smyrna letter you'll find in verse 18, I am he that liveth, which liveth and was dead, and behold, I am now uh, behold, I am alive forevermore. The Pergamene church is in verse 16, out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. The Thyatiran church is verses 14 and 15, eyes of flame of fire and feet like fine brass. Sardis is also in the opening chapter in verse 4, where we see seven spirits of God. Now the first thing for us to recognize is that this is a description of Christ. There's something in that phrase that will point us to Christ because revelation is the revelation of Him. So that's our first clue. Christ is in the phrase. Secondly, we recognize the number seven. This number keeps appearing throughout the book. There are seven stars, seven candlesticks, seven churches, seven years, seven vials, and on it goes. Seven is a number that signifies completion. So that when seven is finished, it's complete. Just like God finished creating in six days, and on the seventh day he rested, and he said, it's done. There is anything left to create. In the end of the book, God completes seven judgments upon the wicked earth, then it's finished. Judgment on the earth is complete, the end comes and the world's ready for the millennial kingdom. There are seven churches, not six, not eight, because that's intended to show the complete church age. So we look at seven churches, and we see representative problems of churches in all ages. So seven is chosen simply to stand for the representation of the whole of churches throughout time. So it runs the complete gambit from the blessed churches and faithful churches like Smyrna and Philadelphia to the worst churches, Sardis and Laodicea. There are churches that are in between like Ephesus and Pergamos. And then there's a Thyatira church that's approaching failure, and that seven, the number seven, is just the entire experience of church life. So we take this number seven, and we backtrack it into Revelation 1, verse 4, and chapter 3, verse 1, to discover the meaning of seven spirits. Seven speaks of the completeness of God himself. That in Christ is the completeness, the perfection of God. There is nothing that can be added to Jesus Christ. He is the fullness of the Godhead. Well, where could we go in scriptures to help interpret that, to be sure that we're on the right track in the explanation? Well, I think the key to it is in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. We read in Isaiah a while ago in the congregational reading. I think the key to it is in the Isaiah prophecy about the coming Christ. But before we go to Isaiah, we need to go to John chapter 16. So I want you to take your Bibles and turn there. This, this chapter is about the Holy Spirit's work. What does the Holy Spirit do in the world? And His work is to reveal Christ. He regenerates hearts so they can recognize Christ. There isn't anything that we can know about Christ. There is no truth that we can receive about Christ unless that truth comes through the revelation of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul said in 1 Corinthians. He, he said, you can't understand the things of God because they are spiritually discerned. Now Jesus then exposits the work of the Holy Spirit in the 16th chapter of John. 
And he says in verse number 7, this is just before he goes to his death, and he promised that the Holy Spirit would come, and he gives us the work of the Holy Spirit when he comes. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, that it is expedient for you that I go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. Of sin, because they believe not on me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. Of judgment, because the Prince of this world is judged. I have yet many things to say unto you, but ye cannot bear them now. Howbeit, when he, the Spirit of truth, is come, he will guide you into all truth, for he shall not speak of himself. But whatsoever he shall hear, that shall he speak, and will show you things to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine, and shall show it unto you. Now, what Jesus tells us here is that the Holy Spirit did not come to preach himself. He didn't come to exalt himself nor did he tell us that we are to magnify him. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to reveal Christ. And so if you alter the Holy Spirit's work to magnify him as charismatics do today, then you rob the Spirit of his work. And you'll notice that in their churches, there isn't much time spent on Christ. There's precious little gospel that's preached, if any. But Jesus is, is so magnificent, there's so much for us to know about him. He is awesomely beautiful, he's altogether lovely, he's perfect man and perfect God. All goodness is in Christ, and the Holy Spirit is here to make that known. And what Jesus came into the world to do. That's his function in the Godhead. Just as the Father has the part that he plays and the Son has the part he plays, it is the work of the Holy Spirit to magnify Jesus Christ. Now we go then to Isaiah chapter 11, which I think, I believe, is the key to understanding the meaning of the seven spirits of God. Isaiah 11 is a messianic chapter. That means it is a prophecy of the Messiah. And this is one of those Old Testament passages that told Israel what to expect when the Messiah came. What will the Messiah be like? Isaiah 11 verse 1. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse. That, of course, refers to the ancestry of Christ from David. And there shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. Here there are seven identifying marks of the Holy Spirit as they exist in Jesus. Revelation is the unveiling of Jesus... And in him is the spirit of wisdom, of understanding, the spirit of counsel, spirit of might, spirit of knowledge, the spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now let's, let's just put these down and let's count what we see in the passage. There are seven attributes of the Holy Spirit that are found in Christ. First we see that he is the spirit of the Lord. Secondly, the spirit of wisdom. Thirdly, the spirit of understanding. Fourthly, the spirit of counsel. Fifthly, the spirit of might. Sixthly, the spirit of knowledge. And seventh is the spirit of the, spirit of the fear of the Lord. Now, I could take time and preach a sermon on each one of those. John wrote, For he whom God sent speaketh the words of God, for God giveth not the spirit by measure unto him. 
Now, I think that when John wrote that, he must have been referring to the full complement of the Spirit, the perfection of the Holy Spirit in Christ. Now, let's look at Isaiah 11 once again. God is remarkable with details. Our study on Sunday nights of the pictures of Christ in the Old Testament worship have shown us that repeatedly. And we notice at the top of the list in Isaiah chapter 11 is the Spirit of the Lord. And you see LORD in all capital letters. That is Jehovah God. Jesus is Jehovah God. Now you separate that from the top of the list and we see what follows. That there are three sets of attributes that are connected by the word and. Wisdom and understanding, counsel and might, knowledge and fear. Those three sets feed up into this statement that Jesus is Lord, that He's the Trinity, that He's the complete Godhead, and Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Now, folks, this is just outstanding theology of Jesus Christ. This is our Christology. Jesus Christ is fully God. We see it come out of the Old Testament, shout out who Jesus is as He appears in the New Testament. Now, we preach much on the wrath of God, that's necessary, but the wrath of God is not the complete picture of Christ. There's much wrath in these seven letters that are written to seven churches, but that's not the complete picture. The rest of it is the love of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the perfection of Christ in all of His beauty. And God the Father showed His love for us in sending us Christ with the fullness of the Spirit in Him. So there's nothing lacking in Him. And that fullness of the Spirit, that becomes the terror to those who don't know Jesus Christ. But for those of us who do know Him, that are in Christ, this Spirit of the seven spirits of Jesus Christ, of God in Christ, are the gift that God has given to believers, that we have all the power living within us in the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now we go back to Revelation chapter 3. How does that saying relate to Sardis? They're dead. And the one that knows them knows that they pretend to be alive, but they are dead. And this saying, the seven spirits of God, is in contrast to that. He is not dead. We saw that in the Smyrna letter. But even more than saying he's not dead, the Spirit or the Word is telling us here that Jesus Christ, that in him is all the vivification of life. There is no more life to get than what you can have in Jesus Christ. So he has life and fullness to an infinite degree. He's all the life of God. And so what does he say? Listen to what he says in John 10.10. 10. The thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and destroy. I am come that they might have life and they might have it more abundantly. I don't want to tread on the rest of the exposition, but can you fail to see that the Word of God fits perfectly together? In verse 3 of our text, I will come on thee as a thief. We don't want that. That's destruction. And He doesn't want to destroy. He wants to give abundant life. He is full of of life. And who is it that gives this life? It's the Spirit. John 6, 63, Jesus said, It is the Spirit that quickeneth, that is, makes alive. The flesh profiteth nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. And haven't we just seen that
come out in the text in the fullness of its splendor of the Word of God. Jesus is full of the Spirit, and the Spirit gives life. He has all the life that the Spirit gives. And so is it any wonder that we hear Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and what? The life. All life is in Him. Nobody comes to the Father but by Him. Nobody lives except for Jesus Christ. We can't substitute anything for Him. People want eternal life, we know. But eternal life is found nowhere but in Christ. Eternal, infinite life can only be given by the One who is eternal, infinite life. He who possesses all life is the only One who can give it. And so that's the contrast. This is where we're going with this church in Sardis. They appear to be alive, but they're dead. And they won't be alive until the one who gives life touches them and brings them to life. Life is his domain. So here's my concluding point for today. A dead church does not have the power of the Holy Spirit. Deadness in a church is defined by sin. That's what it means to be dead. It's a church that is overcome by sin. When we're brought to life, what is it that we're brought from? Well, the Bible describes it. We're brought from the deadness of sin. And you hath he quickened, made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sin. So deadness and life are incompatible. Spirit and sin are incompatible. And so a church must get rid of sin in order to enjoy life. To enjoy the life of the Spirit. Deadness in life, spirit and sin cannot be in the same church. And so I would say to you, dead church member, the church can't exist with too many people like you. And I don't want to sound cruel and unkind, but if any of you have decided to go the way of the world, you're going to kill the church. A zombie infects others, and soon we'll have nothing but a reputation. So some of you are used to be Christians, perhaps, and too many of you would make us a used-to-be church. Do you understand? Your lifeless body in the pew is of no use to us. Now, we don't really want to get rid of you. We want you to come alive. And if you don't, then we don't have any choice but to bury you, because eventually you're going to stink up the place. So this letter is going to tell us how can we get our zeal for Christ back? This is what the Spirit says to the church. Get with the program before you kill us. Empty pews are better than pews filled with rotting corpses. So this is what Christ says. He says, watch. Satan is sneaking up your path. You better knock him off before he knocks you off. And some of you, Satan sneaked in a long time ago and he's already taken over and he is in control. We've got to watch before Satan kills the church, kills our spiritual vitality in the church and thereby the church goes away. So what is our message here from the Spirit? Go back to Jesus Christ. Watch. Watch your life. Watch the sin in your life. Watch the way that you live and not only watch it, get rid of it. Because you can't have sin and the Spirit at the same time. Watch. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your blessed word. We thank you, Lord, for the 
strength that we receive from it, the warnings that we get from it, the encouragement that we need to be careful with our lives. Lord, I pray that people in our church that want to hang their hat on things that they used to do, the Lord, you bring some folks to life. Say, let's get back busy working in our church and doing what we're supposed to do, not what we used to do. Father, we thank you for your church and the love and compassion and care that we've seen from our membership. And we know, Lord, we have good folks in our church, and that's why we're here, and that's why we continue to be able to preach the Word of God on Sunday mornings. Our folks have not altogether compromised. So, Lord, I pray that you just speak to those who have, those who are complacent, just watch things go by rather than being involved in making this a church that stands for you in this community. Help us, Lord, to do your will. Speak to those that need you in salvation as well. Open their eyes to the gospel of Jesus Christ. No one understands except the Spirit opens blinded eyes. So we pray for that today, Lord. Help us to be a church that watches. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org